Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New England Gothic. I'm your host, Kate Ford. And before we get into today's episode, I need to just gush for a moment about how much I freaking love all of you because you're all so amazing. So in the past week, we were able to double the amount of views like that took me months to get just doubled one week. The amount of followers doubled. I can't believe it. And so because of this, okay, ready? I'm so excited. My podcast was able to top the charts, the top 150 charts for history podcasts in England, Ireland, Switzerland, and Australia. And even better, ready? Okay. We were in the top 100 Technically, it was 101, but I'm just going to roll with it. I'm going to round round it up a little bit. Top 100 history podcasts in the United States. I don't know how the fuck that happened. Pardon my French, because I'm just, you know, this is a one woman show over here. I'm just doing my best, you know, and thanks to all of your love and support and sharing. And I mean, I don't know, just you all are amazing. I could not be doing this without you. I also found out that Elena from Morbid shouted me out on her story and I wish I saw it. I follow her. I just completely missed it. So if you are a new follower, thanks to Elena, that's amazing. I love Morbid. I really look up to them. Their podcast is awesome. And what else? Seriously, I just, I actually cried multiple times over these, the growth of this podcast because it's just me, you know, I'm doing this for fun. I'm putting a lot of time and energy and effort into this. I know I've said it before. I mean, full disclosure, I am a whole $7 richer due to my ads. Let's let's stop the ranting and let's get into today's story. Like I said, this is a batshit crazy poltergeist story. I love poltergeist stories. I've always been very fascinated with them. So I've been sitting on this story for a while. Actually, I've wanted to do it, um, but it's long. So I just really needed to research it a little bit longer to be able to do the story justice. So without further ado, today's story is the Stratford Poltergeist, a.k.a. The Real Nightmare on Elm Street. So our story takes place in Stratford, Connecticut, and the stars of the show are the Phelps family and the unseen force that torments them. So let's do a little background on the Phelps family. The patriarch of the family, who was, spoiler alert, also the potential cause of the haunting, was named Dr. Eliakim Phelps. And he was said to be fascinated by the occult and spiritualism, and as a hobby, did try to get in touch with spirits through holding multiple seances. In March of 1850, when our story takes place, it is believed he inadvertently summoned something. Local lore suggests that it was actually the disgruntled spirit of a witch named Goody Bassett. But before we get into the details of this wild-ass haunting, I'm telling you, like, they're going crazy in there. It's so bizarre. It's one of those cases where it's, On paper, not even that scary. I mean, it does get scary, but the way this unseen force torments this family is so strange. It's disturbing. So anyway, I'm I'm getting too excited. Here's a little bit of background info. Reverend Eliakim Phelps came to Stratford in February of 1848 and bought the mansion on Elm Street 
that had once belonged to a sea captain named George R. Dowell. The house was an odd house. The sea captain meant to replicate the inside of his ship, so the inside of his house was described as kind of resembling like a big ship. Dr. Phelps himself had been born in Belchertown, Mass. He was the son of a respected New England family. He graduated from Union and Andover seminaries and had been in charge of multiple congregations. So obviously this is a religious man. We've got a man of God over here. Reverend Phelps, like I mentioned, becomes very fascinated with the spiritualist movement, and he's just very interested in all things mystical. And he doesn't hide this fact, and he's one of those people who is able to continue being a man of God, you know, working as a reverend, and also having a side hobby of doing seances with the homies. Around the age of 59 years old, Reverend Phelps decides to change things up in his life. In his early 50s, his wife had passed away and all his children had grown up and left home. He decides to remarry and he moves to Stratford, Connecticut. So his new wife is much younger than him and already had three children, and together they have a son. The growing family moves in together to this beautiful mansion on Elm Street in Stratford, Connecticut, and all is well. The end. Just kidding. We know it's not the end. It is just the beginning because shit is about to get spooky. Sorry, I'm kind of swearing a lot today. I don't know. Despite happy appearances, things were not going well behind closed doors for the new and growing Phelps family. Apparently, the new Mrs. Phelps did not enjoy living in Stratford and did not like her neighbors. It was also noted that her oldest daughter, who was 16 at the time, suffered from severe anxiety. Relatable. We've got some teen angst going on, and if you are familiar with poltergeist lore, you know that that tends to be a factor. And the anxious daughter is not the only angsty child in this household, but we will get to that. So let's discuss the official haunting. On a Sunday in March of 1850, Sunday, March 10th to be specific, the entire Phelps family returned from church services that morning to find the doors of their house wide open. Now, this was particularly strange because their maid was actually away, so Reverend Phelps himself had been sure to secure the entire house, inside and out, doors and windows, everything. The only keys were in his pocket. But now they discovered that all of the doors and windows had been flung open. Reverend Phelps cautiously enters the house, unsure of what might be there. He assumes they've been robbed. He discovers absolute chaos. Someone had absolutely destroyed the place. Furniture was knocked over, books, papers, clothing, dishes smashed. Everything's everywhere. It looks like a tornado ripped through there. Yet strangely, they apparently were not robbed. Phelps found his gold watch, silver, loose cash, everything was still there, all their valuables. So he just assumes that they walked in on the robber in the middle of their job and they must have escaped out of a window before stealing any valuables. The family decides to go upstairs together and inspect the rest of the house and what they find is so disturbing once you really think about it. What they find on the beds are sheets spread out and Mrs. Phelps' nightgowns and stockings laid out with the arms crossed, so as if they are corpses 
ready to be buried. So just clothes, like no people in them, empty clothes, positioned as if they are about to be buried. That's just very unnerving. So at this point, they're probably thinking someone is just trying to scare us. Someone's just messing with us. And being the godly family that they are, they just go back to church for the afternoon services. Apparently, back then, you'd go to church more than once a day. Sounds like a lot. Reverend Phelps decides to stay home just in case anyone tries to come back and finish whatever plan they had started. And the rest of the family goes back to church. So he hides in his study, he's got his pistol, he's just sitting there for hours waiting to see if anybody's going to break back in. After a few hours and nothing happens, he does not hear a sound, he thinks, okay, well, it's clearly safe to come out now, I'm going to leave my hiding spot. And what he finds is even more disturbing than the corpse-style clothing laid out. I don't know why this scares the shit out of me. Ready? I'm going to tell you. He steps out of his hiding place. Like I said, he did not hear a sound, not even a breeze, nothing. And he walks into a room that looks like it is filled with a bunch of women praying. They look so real and they are completely silent and still. They are standing, kneeling. They're all in different religious positions. And some of them are bowing their heads. Some of them are holding Bibles. Some of them are praying so low that their foreheads are on the floor, and they're all in a circle in the center of the room. But after a moment, the reverend realizes they're not real women. They are dummies made out of the family's clothing. That's so disturbing to me. So somehow, while Reverend Phelps is hiding in his study, with no one making a sound in the entire house, All of these incredibly lifelike dummies are created out of their clothing and scraps from around their house while he's there. He doesn't hear a sound. This work would have taken many, many hours of labor, literal artistic experts to make dummies out of clothing that look so real that he thought they were real women at first, right? I don't know why that is so scary to me. This is just day one of the haunting, okay? Day one. And just to reiterate, we've got clothes laid out like corpses ready for burial. That is so scary. And then while someone is literally standing guard, somehow 20 magical lifelike dummies are able to be created out of the family's clothing and fabric materials in the house without making a sound. And they are so lifelike and they are all posed as women praying to a little demon. I forgot to add, reports say they're all circled around a little demon creature. That is so scary to me. I don't know why. That scares the shit out of me. Day one of this haunting continues with a lot of other poltergeist activity We have reports of umbrellas jumping into the air and traveling nearly 25 feet across the house. All of the silverware, books, pens, small objects just started to materialize and they would be thrown across the room. All of their fabrics, like sheets, pillows, curtains, everything would be messed with, kind of like fluttered about. And this just continued for the rest of the day until nighttime. It seemed like whatever spirit or unseen force got tired... It just stopped, like as if it had never happened. 
But that was just day one. Day two, it starts all over again. The next day when the activity starts up again, they are obviously mortified, so they immediately call for help. Reverend Phelps contacts Reverend John Mitchell, a friend and a retired minister. Mitchell listens to the story and quickly suggests a very obvious solution. He tells the reverend to remove the children from the house and see if the activity continues. He does not believe this is an unseen force or a poltergeist or a demon. He thinks the kids are playing a prank. Which makes sense in most poltergeist cases, but in this case, I'm sorry, did they send the children to puppet mastery school? Are they apprenticing under an expert puppet maker? That doesn't make any sense to me. How could the kids have done that, especially while they were at church? But anyway, Reverend Mitchell shortly changes his tune and starts to believe that something demonic or some sort of poltergeist is really happening because he witnesses activity that he cannot explain himself. And he will be the first of many credible witnesses. Fast forward to March 14th. It has now been four days of this unexplainable haunting. During breakfast, a potato literally drops out of nowhere and lands on the table. And throughout the rest of the day, witnesses claimed 46 objects appeared out of nowhere and materialized in their locked parlor. A lot of these items were items in the home. They just seemed to be magically transported into a locked room where they would materialize out of nowhere. And this was in front of Reverend Phelps, Reverend Mitchell, and Mrs. Phelps. This activity continues for weeks, and many people come through the home to witness this activity. Like we've mentioned, objects appear out of nowhere, they fly through the air, some items would actually move at a very slow speed and touch down on the floor as if they had just been placed there. So it's one thing you're seeing your silverware get launched across the room as if someone picked it up and threw it. Scary. What's even scarier to me is you're sitting at the table and you see your fork just casually bopping on by. <laughs> I don't know, just an image in my head. Phelps and others would claim that they would see objects change course while in flight as well. Despite many witnesses and tons of absolutely unexplainable bizarre activity, a lot of people claimed that the Phelps were, this was all a hoax. So Phelps invited skeptics to come see the house for himself. He was hospitable to reporters, investigators, and even just, you know, looky-loos who wanted to see what was going on. He allowed anyone and everyone to come in the house and see for themselves. And many of them got what they wanted because this force was not picky about who its audience was. It loved to put on a show. So this is just adding to the allure of this Phelps mansion haunting. There are so many people witnessing these crazy things. By now, the Phelps haunting has become a huge sensation. And one of his older sons from his first marriage, Austin Phelps, reads about the story in the newspaper and thinks to himself, my dad's lost his damn mind. I need to go down there and see what the hell's going on because he's giving our family a bad name. Like I mentioned, the Phelps family was a well-to-do, well-known Boston family. And Austin, the son, joins with his uncle, a doctor, a well-known doctor in Boston, Abner Phelps, and they journey on down to the haunted house to see for themselves what the hell is going on. It was said that Austin, his son, did not approve of his marriage to such a young woman, and he was very convinced from the get-go that it was one of his stepchildren. 
During their first night visiting the mansion, they hear loud pounding noises and they assume it's knocking coming from the front door. They take turns pulling it open and guarding the door, and each time they expected to pounce on whoever was behind this, and each time they found it completely empty. Finally, they stood on both sides of the door, with Austin on the outside and his uncle inside, but the knocking continued to appear, materializing out of nowhere. The men were also disturbed by knocking upstairs on the second night. They determined that that noise was probably coming from the older daughter Anna's room, the one with anxiety. So they decide to spy on her. They're going to just burst right in the room, thinking that they'll catch her in the act. But when they burst in the room, they find her sitting alone in her bed, terrified. Austin wrote of the experience, quote, The young lady was in bed, covered up and out of reach of the door. We examined the panel and had found dents where it had been struck. So he's admitting that this knocking in the house is coming from all of these sources that they cannot determine. And apparently two nights in the home were plenty enough to prove to the men that this haunting was genuine. They left believing it was a true experience. And a little side note about Austin, his experiences on Elm Street became an inspiration for his own daughter, who later published three spiritualism-inspired novels under the name Elizabeth Stuart Phelps Ward. She was also an early feminist who seemed like a cool badass, so I just thought that that was cool. And also she was a vegan like a hundred years before it was cool to be vegan. So, fun little side note. But not so fun is the absolute horror that the Phelps family are still living through every single day with this poltergeist terrorizing their family. At this point, I'm sure they're fully losing their minds because they can't sleep all night long. They're hearing knocking and rapping and voices screaming bizarre sounds. And all day, there's just objects flying all over the room. Silverware is being bent and twisted. Windows are broken. Papers are just scattered everywhere. Chairs dance across the floor as if they've come to life. And remember those creepy ass doll puppet things from earlier? We've got more of them. In fact, it was reported about in the New Haven Journal. Quote, In a short space of time, so many figures were constructed that it would not have been possible for a half a dozen women working steadily for hours to have completed their design. Yet, these things happened in short space of time with the whole house on watch. In all, about 30 figures were constructed during this period. End quote. An author named Joseph Citro wrote that one of the kneeling figures wearing a dress belonging to Mrs. Phelps was so realistic that when the youngest children walked into the room, they saw the figure and the boy whispered, Be still, Ma is saying prayers. Another entry in the New Haven Journal mentioned about the figures and how they would all arrange themselves and manifest around this small demon-like creature, like I mentioned earlier, it was described as a small devil, a demon. They all seem to be worshipping this little creature, which is so unsettling. As time continues, the haunting escalates to full-on violence and really targets the two oldest children, Anna and Henry. A reporter from the New York Sun was visiting, and he wrote that when he visited at the end of April in 1850, he was present in the room with Anna and Mrs. Phelps, and was able to observe them at all times. At one point, he saw Anna's arm jerk and twitch as she announced that she had just been pinched, and the reporter rolled back her sleeve and stated that he saw 
really painful-looking red marks on her arm. There were other instances reported where it appeared Anna had been slapped very hard by invisible hands. They would only see her shake or jerk her head, but they would report to hear a slapping sound and they would see welts and red marks appear on her skin right after. There are reports that Anna actually almost died due to this activity. One night while she was asleep, it was reported that a pillow was pressed over her head tightly and then something was tied around her neck and started to strangle her. And that's bad enough. But her brother Henry was reported to be tortured even worse. He was constantly pinched, hit, beaten, and occasionally knocked out and kidnapped by this unseen force. One day, in front of Reverend Phelps, he was hit by a bunch of small stones, and another time in front of a newspaper reporter, he was carried away from his bed by an unseen force and just dumped on the floor. Another instance happens where, in front of multiple witnesses, he was lifted into the air so high that his hair brushed the ceiling of the room. One day, he just completely vanishes and later ends up outside tied up and suspended from a tree, and he had no memory of how he had gotten there. I feel like with this story, I'm having a lot of Billy Mays, but wait, there's more moments because you just think, wow, that's horrible, and then it gets worse. Henry was also burned, thrown down a cistern, and also had his clothing ripped off of him in front of visiting clergymen. He was also discovered missing again and was found later shoved into a closet with a rope tied around his neck. What the fuck is happening? At this point, there are a ton of theories of what the hell is going on at the house, no pun intended. Reverend Phelps and his church friends are all convinced based on the figurines worshipping the little demon creature. They're convinced this is a demonic possession type haunting whereas other people think it is a poltergeist. And, according to local lore, there was a witch named Goody Bassett who had been hanged on the property, and many people believed that this was her spirit coming back for vengeance. We will be circling back to Goody Bassett later on, so remember that name. Reverend John Mitchell, remember him? He spends a lot of time in this house investigating and he manages to engage the spirit or spirits in a conversation because he creates sort of a little code of knocks and alphabet and replies. However, the answers he receives are incredibly foul, so that adds to their theory of this is a demon. Eventually, the communication develops and starts becoming full-fledged writing from the spirit. In fact, Dr. Phelps claims one day while he was writing in his study alone, he walked away for a moment and came back to the paper with still wet ink and mysterious writing all over it. After this paper incident, the rest of the family would receive mysterious letters that sometimes just appeared out of thin air or would float down and just kind of land in front of them. Sometimes they would appear in a sealed box. But none of the messages really gave too much information, and they were all thrown away by Reverend Phelps, who felt like they were too evil to keep around. So at this point, we're probably all thinking... What the hell? Literally, what the hell? What is happening? How could this just have started happening out of nowhere? Remember, they'd lived there for two whole years before this haunting started. 
So I want to circle back to a few days before the first haunting incident. All right? All right. On March 4th, about a week before it all started, an old friend of Reverend Phelps came to Stratford for a visit. Knowing the minister's interest in the mystical, remember, we mentioned at the very beginning, he was very into the occult, he was very into spiritualism, and he was very interested in seances. So him and the bros, you know, they just come on down to visit and do a little seance. One thing led to another when his friend was visiting and they decided to do a seance. That's just so funny to me. That's just, I just feel like I relate to that. They start to communicate with some sort of spirit and they get their questions answered by knocking and rapping sounds, kind of like what is plaguing them now in the house. So did they summon something? Who knows? But Reverend Phelps does believe he inadvertently summoned whatever evil force was tormenting his family. And he's so desperate at this point, he says, you know what, fuck it, we're doing another seance. This time, communication was very easy, and the spirit claimed to be a soul in hell, enduring torment for the sins he had committed in life. Reverend Phelps asked what he could do for the spirit and if he could help him in any way using their little alphabet knocking code, and the ghost asked Phelps to bring him a piece of pumpkin pie. This confused Reverend Phelps, so he asked again, and the spirit also asked for a glass of gin to go along with the pumpkin pie. Finally, Phelps asked, why are you doing this to us? And the spirit responded, for fun. Here's where things take a very interesting turn. They continue to talk and eventually the spirit claims to have been a law clerk who had worked for Mrs. Phelps at one point. He said he was trapped in hell because he committed financial fraud. Wanting to prove that the spirit is telling the truth, Reverend Phelps actually takes a trip down to the law firm in Philly and proves that there really was a law clerk who committed fraud, was arrested, and persecuted for it, under the name that the spirit gave. Very interesting. However, for one reason or another, Reverend Phelps decides to claim that this was fraud, not that he was committing fraud, but that he believes a spirit was lying to him and just using this man's identity for whatever reason. At this point, as you can imagine, the Phelps family is absolutely exhausted. They are completely done. First of all, I don't know how you stayed there after one day of that shit, let alone literal months, but... They decide to actually straight up just abandon the home and they move back to Philadelphia. Before they left, Reverend Phelps claims he was in his study one night and a paper appeared out of nowhere and asked when the family would be leaving. On a piece of paper, Reverend Phelps writes down the word October 1st. And by that day, they left. Phelps sent his wife ahead of him to Philly, and he did remain in the home for a few days after them, just to, you know, get everything settled. And during this time, everything stopped. Luckily for the Phelps family, whatever was tormenting them in their Stratford home did not follow them back to Philly. But it seems like whatever was tormenting them never really left the property, because that might be the end of the Phelps story, but it's not the end of the property story. 
After the Phelps abandoned their home, it eventually was turned into an elderly care home, I believe. It was bought by a hospital and used as like a care facility. And for over 20 years, the staff reports hearing very strange noises, whispering, unexplained knocks, and saw heavy doors opening and closing by themselves. So this is around the 40s at this point. By the 70s, the police spot a little girl inside the now deserted and completely disheveled mansion. They even chased this little girl into a third floor bedroom where she vanished into thin air. Let's talk about some theories on what happened here. So a famous medium who visited during the Phelps time living in the mansion, this medium was named Andrew Jackson Davis. He claims that this was definitely 100% a poltergeist haunting And he thinks that Henry was the cause. He claims that Henry was very upset over the death of his father and his mother's quick remarriage to the Reverend Phelps. And, you know, it's just classic preteen angst and rage that supposedly fuel poltergeist activity. It was noted that the activity would definitely settle down when Henry wasn't around. Others theorized that the hauntings were the spirit of Goody Bassett. Remember her? So this was a local woman who was executed for witchcraft on the Elm Street property in the 1600s. According to records, she practiced, quote, black magic and had been speaking out against town elders. You all know me and you know I've talked a lot about witch trials on here. Clearly, just a woman who spoke her mind and they killed her for it. I will say the town of Stratford really seems to embrace the Goody Bassett lore, and I'm going to actually read you a little bit more about the Goody Bassett story and how it ties to the Phelps Mansion from a local. So I'm going to read you a clip of an article written by the owners of an ice cream store named after Goody Bassett, and this was submitted to me by my friend who runs Ghost Watch Zine, which is an amazing zine. I know you'll all love it, so definitely check it out. But anywho, I'm just going to read a little bit of this article they submitted about Goody Bassett's history. So, a new family, the Bassetts, had moved to town from the New Haven colony. The good wife Bassett was, for the time, a strong-willed woman, quick to criticize New Haven for refusing non-church members the right to vote, and spoke out against them, finding her husband, for refusing to keep a ladder at their home, which was required by law. She made few friends among the newly settled residents. It was only since the Bassetts moved to Stratford that the people had been overcome by this scourge of sickness, hallucination, poor harvests, and death. Since their arrival, the winter had been more cold and bitter than ever before. The townspeople wanted an explanation and started looking for a reason, or a person, to blame. Who could this witch be that brought the destruction of crops and sickness to Stratford? Their conclusion? Goody Bassett must be a witch and she must be put to death to set things right. The colonial records for May 15, 1651 state explicitly, The governor, Mr. Colick, and Mr. Clark are desired to go down to Stratford to keep court upon the trial of Goody Bassett for her life, and if the governor cannot go, then Mr. Wells is to go in his room. The record does not say who testified, but neighborhood women and girls told of curses placed upon them, of mysterious things seen flying in the night, of aches and pains attributed to the witch, and of the beings they may have seen her consorting with. The judges then admonished the unlucky woman to tell the truth, to admit her link with the devil. 
During this time, accused witches were examined by another woman for witch marks on their body, or they may have used the water test where, tied and bound, she was immersed in the water, and if she sank, she was innocent, but if she floated, she was guilty. The sentence handed down to Goodwife Bassett was to hang. Outside the village palisade, through the northwest gate, they took her to Gallows Brook. Bassett was hanged in Stratford, although there's some question as to exactly where, some believe it was near the spot where the infamous Phelps Mansion stood on Elm Street, and that it was Goody's restless spirit that was the source of the haunting. Where she was buried is also unknown. Today, all vestige of this tragedy is gone. The brook and the gallows bridge across it disappeared in 1848, when the railroad was graded through the town. Witch's Rock is said to be buried underneath the turnpike in 1958 to discourage the occult from exploiting its supernatural powers. Others say the rock was broken up and used as the cornerstone for the Phelps Mansion, possibly to explain the hauntings there attributed to Goody. So like I mentioned, I kind of broke this up. It was a really long article. I just wanted to read the information that was super relevant to this story, but that's interesting, right? Again, this was sent to me by my friend at Ghost Watch Scene. I'm also going to be using some photos that I was lucky enough to have sent to me by them. And you can also find all of this information in, let's see here, Ghost Watch Scene Volume 3 Local Lore. So check that out. There's a lot of stuff on this haunting in that episode. It's amazing. There was a lot more they sent me. I wish I had time to share it all. Maybe another time, maybe we'll do a collab on this. That would be amazing. But again, Ghostwatch scene. There are multiple stories of locals doing seances and just kids, you know, in the 70s before it was destroyed, exploring the mansion, exploring the ruins and encountering some very odd and scary things. But yeah, that is the story of the Stratford Poltergeist, aka the real nightmare on Elm Street. I think that's what I'm going to call this episode. But yeah, wow, seriously, so eerie. I just love a good old-fashioned poltergeist. I love old hauntings because they're just so bizarre. And of course, you can't really prove anything because it's all like 1800s hearsay, which makes it more fun to me. If you like stories like this, definitely check out the Enfield Poltergeist. It takes place in England. I want to say it's the 50s or 60s. Very similar type of haunting. Very scary. Very interesting. I actually watched an entire kind of like docu-series on it. It's fictionalized, but it's set up. I don't know. It's really good. It was just called Enfield, I think. I watched it on Hulu. It was so good. This story also feels reminiscent of the Bell Witch Haunting, another haunting you should check out if you love poltergeist stories. So yeah, that's the Enfield Poltergeist and the Bell Witch. Check them out. Honestly, that's all I've got for you today. This was a pretty long episode. I'm sorry this is releasing a little bit later than usual because it just took a lot longer to record. So I'm just gonna go outside, I think, at this point. Thank you all again. Like I said earlier, you all mean so much to me, and if you could just take five seconds to give me five stars, it really does help. And yeah, I don't know, share with your spooky friends. And also, I would love to hear your suggestions for stories if you have any. As always, email me with anything at all. 
the New England Gothic at gmail.com. I'm also on Instagram, the New England Gothic. And my personal TikTok where I cover a lot of these stories is creepy Caitlin, spelt C-A-I-T-L-I-N. And yeah, I seriously, like I said earlier, I was crying because I was so thankful and so excited. And I know that these numbers are still pretty small in the world of podcasting, but it means so much to me. Seriously, you're all so amazing. I'm going to say it every single week. I don't care. I'm At one point, I'm just going to come on here and cry tears because I love you all so much. Oh, perfect timing. Honeybee just wandered on in to say hello. Hi, honeybee. And I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you next week. I'm your host, Kate Ford, and this is the New England Gothic.